all of humanity shares one common goal, to live a life without suffering. However, as conscious human beings, we know that is impossible. But accepting that fact may just be the key to a happier life. Welcome, I'm Barry Kibrick. My guest, the world-renowned physician and scientist, Dr. Jacob Ziegelboim, believes we can heal our souls and find inner peace. With his book, Paradise Lost, Paradise Regained, we'll explore the difference between pain and suffering and how we can, with a little effort, experience sustainable joy. Dr. Ziegelboim, it is such a pleasure to have you here. I know my listeners are truly going to enjoy your wisdom. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. I much appreciate being here. I can tell you even decided to dress like me. Uh, indeed. I think it's a great look. <laughs> well, Doc, I'm going to start with these words. We all as human beings share this yearning to live a life which suffering is either non-existent or rare. And that is what we all ask for. Yes, that's what we all want. And uh, uh, it's something that um, I think we should uh, pursue. Um, I was always impressed um, when I read the Declaration of Independence about those three inalienable rights, life and freedom and the pursuit of happiness. And um, I think that happiness and endurable happiness is something that we deserve and that we are entitled to. And, um, and at the same time, um, we are suffering beings, and so we need to integrate those things. We need to understand uh, how to respond to that reality so that we can um, uh, reach that goal. In fact, you actually say that the suffering is caused almost by our wisdom in a certain way, by our ability to be conscious, allows us to think, and that, as thinking beings, causes us sometimes to suffer. If we weren't thinking, there'd be no suffering to a certain extent. It's a double-edged sword. Indeed. And that's one of the things that motivated me to, to write the book. Um, the clarification that suffering is normal, it's physiological, it's innate, it's not the byproduct of some kind of uh, transgression or some kind of um, uh, uh, disobedience as it's portrayed in our original myth. Uh, And I think it's important to clarify that because I think we carry some stigma about the fact that we suffer rather than an understanding that we suffer because we are human, because we are conscious, because we are aware of our distressing and unpleasant feelings. And that is not something to be cured, that is something to be embraced and to appreciate and to honor. That's what I found so fascinating was this is not a book that tries to eliminate suffering. It does, what it does is make you aware that we're going to and how do we live with, as you call it, the primordial wound. Exactly. We all uh, are wounded. And that's inevitable. Uh, I was very impressed 
watching my grandchildren grow up uh, because I had the direct experience of seeing that transition from an unconscious life in the uh, first months and the first year, year and a half of their life, and then suddenly becoming aware. And with that, the distress, the fear, the shame. Um, so that is what humans have to go through. Uh, that's part of our uh, truth. That's part of our being. That's part of our reality. That's part of our nature. And anything that rejects or disowns our nature cannot be productive, cannot be wholesome, cannot lead to anything really positive. You make a very good distinction, though, between pain and suffering. Right. And Every time I've been talking about this book with people and I say that, almost everyone goes, isn't it the same thing? If I'm in pain, I'm suffering. And I said, not when you read Dr. Ziegelboim's book. Right. It is different. How, in, in the best way, because you, you do it throughout the book, I want people to know that this has to be reinforced over and over again because it is such a difficult concept. But pain is different from suffering. Right. Because suffering it requires a consciousness, requires a subject that experiences the distressing feelings and the distressing emotions. Now, an organism a, can be afflicted by pain or can be afflicted by a noxious stimulus. But if there is no subject that is aware of that, there is no suffering. The suffering requires consciousness. In the absence of consciousness, we can have pain, we can have distressing feelings. For example, an unconscious person may experience, the body of an unconscious person may experience pain. If you, uh, if you touch it in a certain way or if you bring in a noxious stimulus, the body reacts. But in the absence of a consciousness, we cannot say that this person actually is suffering. We can say that the body is distressed or the body is in experiencing a noxious stimulus or pain, but there is no actual uh, awareness. Therefore, in that context, we say there is no suffering because it demands the presence of a consciousness. Well, now, I'm going to sort of take those words and I'm going to read them because I have something that I want to end it with, and I'll, and I'll tell you what it is. It's about a sentence or two long, so just bear, bear with me, audience. Finally, consciousness, as the doctor says, endows us with the ability to imagine events that have not happened and may never happen. Yet because our thoughts can evoke feelings, we experience such imaginings emotionally as if they actually did happen. And I wrote then in big, black, bold letters, gosh darn it, if it's not our biggest issue, at least it's personally my biggest issue. How do we separate that from our emotion? Because we, we're seeking this lack of suffering, as you say, and yet we're so tied in with it, the separation seems such a difficult task. Yes, and um, you know, in my work as a physician, um, that was a critical 
uh, awareness that changed my practice uh, at some point. And there was the realization that what really affects people, like I am an oncologist, and so I was working with people who had cancer of different kinds, uh, was not so much the illness, but was the knowledge of the illness and what that knowledge did to them, the kind of thoughts and images and feelings and um, dreams and actions that it provoked. So yes, we are endowed with the capacity to imagine, and we're endowed with the capacity to imagine very bad scenarios. And, and that's precisely what happens with people with, who are diagnosed with a serious illness. They immediately go to the worst case scenario and imagine how terrible uh, things could be when in fact it's not factual. So how do we counteract that? Well, that's part of the developmental process that we can go through. That's part of the transformative process that allows us to handle better our emotions, to be able to understand better our reality and not to be um, subject or dominated by fear or by shame or by all of those things that causes us so much distress. And but, by, oh, go ahead, sorry. but it's part of our part of our endowment, just like we can imagine wonderful things, we can also imagine very difficult scenarios and have the emotions that go along with that evoked as if it had occurred when in fact it hasn't and never will. And actually, that is what I was going to say next, is because with right after those sentences, you do tell us the positive side of this is that that's how we have insight. We wouldn't have insight if we couldn't imagine even the worst things. It sounds, again, like that double-edged sword. By us going in that direction, it also makes us know that we can have insights, we can have thoughts of, of the future, we, can, we have foresight, we have all these things if we do project, so it's, it's, it's projecting the proper things, not being filled with the suffering elements. Right. And that comes with maturity, with development, with um, expansion of your consciousness so that it allows you to see a larger picture and not be so dominated by, by your emotions. But at the same time, as you said before, you can imagine wonderful things and have the evocation of the pleasant feelings. You can imagine uh, having a wonderful relationship. You may imagine having a great vacation. or having. You can imagine and see in your imagination a beautiful setting and have the evocation of that. All of that is part of our gift. It's all part of our privilege as human beings. You mentioned the Constitution before and life, the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you take it even one step further. You say that man's drive to freedom is literally encoded in his soul. Yes. Yes, I think it, I, I feel that in my own life, and I also see it uh, in the people with whom I interact and all over the place. I think there is something very deep in us. First of all, there is an enormous drive to live. Uh, but beyond that, there is a need, 
and a yearning to be free, to be free to make choices, to be free to express yourself, to be free to inquire. Now, you say personal growth, however, is slow, irregular, arduous, non-volitional process that usually unfolds in stages. Its progress is not completely under our control. Yes. Yes, this is a very interesting conundrum that evolution or God or whichever way you want to think of it has created for us. Because physical growth and physical development is pretty much programmed. Um, We can aid it, we can help it, but it's in there. You know, we grow in a certain moment, we develop our sexual organs, we go into menopause. All of that is pre-programmed and it's in our genetic code. But psychological development, psycho-spiritual development is not. It's only something that comes to us. We can set the intention, we can perhaps enter certain processes... Uh, but there is no guarantee, and it's not a willful thing. You cannot say, for example, I am going to mature in the next six months. Uh, I'm going to develop new understanding, new resources. Um, it, it just doesn't work that way. But it's a real process. It's a real phenomenon. It's genuine, it's concrete, and, and it's tangible. But it's not willful. You know, I I spoke to you earlier and I said I could do so many episodes with you, but I have to bring in some of it now. I just can't because I think when people realize that your own journey had a reflection that helped bring about this awareness, you as the oncologist suffered yourself from cancer or, better yet, knew that you had cancer Maybe you didn't suffer. But the process is what helped enable you to come up with some of the philosophies that you are espousing now. Yes. And and I wanted to uh, make allusion to that in in this way. That usually, uh, in general, uh, it's not uh, mandatory, but it's very common, that what catalyzes, what triggers the transformative process or the growth spurt uh, from a psychological and psycho-spiritual perspective is an event that shakes or in a way collapses your belief structure. Because once that happens, that the things that you believe, the things that the way you thought the world worked, the way you felt safe in the world, when that is shaken or collapses as a result of an event, uh, you have to find a new platform on which to stand. Well, you say these words. Suddenly, an inner voice began to interrupt my daily activities. And you even then refer to some of the voices that the, the great prophets have heard were most likely inner voices that disrupted their daily activity.
Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Right. And so part of what happens when the, you enter into these kind of processes is that you begin to reconnect and reestablish a relationship with your interior, uh, with your intuition, with your dream processes, with the ideas that suddenly emerge into you. You begin to pay attention um, and, and to listen and to suddenly be enter into this dance, into this relationship, into this interaction with something that is in you, but it's not your ego self, and it's not your objective self, and it feeds you, and it's a wonderful dance. You brought up something that I, I like to emphasize, and it, I want to read it. I was learning to understand feelings as language the way our bodies communicate their needs and wishes. And I've said this in a few shows, and I'm going to bring it up again because it's so important. We always only think of our mind. We forget how much our body can really tell us. Right. Um, I think it's the body that really tells us. The mind analyzes and, and reflects and, and, and thinks and, and can do analytical process. But the body tells us something is the matter. I'm feeling comfortable right now sitting here. Um, I wasn't comfortable half an hour ago. Uh, I feel joy. I feel pain. I feel embarrassed. Something is the matter. I can respond to it. If I'm disconnected from my feelings, if I'm not attuned to them, then I cannot take really good care of myself. So that is the, the idea that feelings are language. The body is telling me something. And one of the things that occurred when you, uh, you made allusion to my illness is that I realized that I needed to take better care of myself. I wanted to do everything I could uh, to support my life, whatever happened. But I didn't want to feel that I didn't do enough or that I was negligent or I was lackadaisical. So being aware of the feelings allows you to say, okay, my body is telling me something is the matter and I want to attend it. I don't want to dismiss it. I don't want to ignore it. I don't want to... Um, discounted. And one of the things that I think happens is then the body feels cared for. And you enter again, like I said, there is this interesting dynamic. Uh, for example, when I was in the university working as a researcher and in medicine, and um, around 2 o'clock, 2.30, I start drinking coffee because I realized I was tired. But I, it was an automatic reaction. I would take the coffee, drink it, it perked me up. 
uh, once after the illness, I realized, well, my body's tired. I'm going to rest. I'm not going to overrule it. I'm going to give it what it wants, and then it will give me back the energy and the, uh, and the clarity of mind to do all the things I need to do. And, and so I, I began to enter into a relationship of, that was caring and empathic to the needs of my body. Uh, you cannot do it always. It's not an absolute, but, but enough. Now, all right, I'm going off script a little. I, I told you I, don't, <laughs> I rarely do this, but as an oncologist, and you find and you discover cancer in your own self, you do seek every way possible. You even say that you are looking for a shaman right. to help you. And I'm curious how much, I don't know if you, I mean, could you be sued if you say this? I'm not even sure. But how much of that cancer, I know you didn't cause it. That was the thing that you wanted to make very clear even to yourself. But how much of it do we have the ability to cure within our own bodies? I think self-healing is, is a reality. Uh, I don't mean to say it uh, in the context of cancer. Uh, but I think the body, one of the things that fascinated me uh, before uh, when I started my career in medicine was the idea that the human body has an amazing mechanism to fight against germs and against cancer, it was the immune system. And so I became an immunologist. I, I got involved in immunological research and eventually in the research of the immunology of cancer. Because it fascinated me, fascinated me the fact that the body could recognize foreign structures, foreign entities, uh, foreign cells, and react to it and defend itself. So the body has enormous resources uh, for recovery and for self-healing uh, at the cellular level, at the molecular level, at the organismic level. And I think that from the perspective of the mind, the mind is interconnected with our other physiological systems and therefore how you feel, how you think, how you act, how you attend to yourself uh, is important in how the body responds. If you send a positive message, message to the body, um, the body hears it. In other words, it's a chemical uh, reaction. It's a chemical process when you have a feeling. So the body is imbued by it and maybe responds stronger to, 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 to whatever the challenge is. Uh, the body is also plastic. We create new, we have new developments, new resources. One of the things that I feel, and I, it's, it's not something that I can prove, but that when I was challenged physically, my, what I call the body-mind, the totality, reacted and began to, uh, to be proactive and develop new skills and new resources and searched and did all kind of, got involved in a, in a very intricate process to support my recovery. And out of that came new faculties, new resources, new skills, new um, uh, capacities. I wonder if this fits into it because 
you say these words, I have called this new iteration the rightness of being human. Yes. Um, like I said before, I think that if you were to ask me, well, what motivated you to write the book? I would say that there are many reasons, but one was the, the, the awareness that we carry a stigma uh, that is, it, it comes from our origin myth that describes our coming into being, our coming into being fully human, meaning conscious, in a very negative terms, as a, in a condemnatory, in a condemnatory term, in negative terms. And I think that that, in my opinion, is erroneous and cruel. And I think that we, we, I think we have come to a point that we can begin to give up that idea that we are a fallen species as opposed to a species that is to be celebrated, that has awesome resources and capacities and gifts. Well, um, Doc, I am very celebrated that you <laughs> joined us today Thank with you. your wisdom. Thank you so much. I'm so greatly appreciated. It's my, my pleasure and honor.